Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today I'm having a gas with Bill Schnee, a veteran recording engineer who has worked with Barbara Streisand, Marvin Gaye, Ringo Starr, John Lennon, Whitney Houston, Carly Simon, Rod Stewart, Miles Davis, Kiki D, Martha Reeves, Neil Diamond, and the list goes on. So we were just talking uh, off mic about um, Andrew Sheps and uh, I was he was on the podcast recently and of course he was well aware of you and, and you're aware of, of him. What, what have you done with him? Um, well, I, I did his, uh, Andrew interviews awesome people most recently. Um, but other than that, you know, we've, uh, we've shared uh, uh, some uh, uh, exposés, uh, you know, at AES. I've been on panels together. Yeah. So sharing, sharing wisdom, sharing knowledge, but I imagine considering some of the caliber of some of the people you've been able to work with, uh, do you get sought out for your opinion and for that kind of thing quite a lot? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I suppose so. Okay. So I suppose a good way of starting might be, uh, say that, well, you've, you've got a book, uh, that's, uh, out now, or is it coming out soon? Did you say? No, yeah, it, it came out in March chairman at the board recording the soundtrack of a generation. And so for people uh, in our industry, uh, the advertising industry in the UK, who might not already be aware of you, uh, what, how would you describe your career in like, a nutshell? Uh, the uh, producer engineer, how's that? <laughs> producer engineer. And I've got some of the artists you've worked with in front of me here, including... Uh, Ringo Starr and indeed all, all of the Beatles. We've got Marvin Gaye, a lot of work with Motown, Steely Dan, uh, mixing for Miles Davis, George Benson, Whitney Houston. It's an impressive resume. Yeah, very, very blessed career. Very, yes. very fortunate. So why don't we discuss how you got started? How, how did you begin? Okay. Um, uh, my senior year of high school, I've met some guys that were starting a band. And uh, I, as a musician, I started off on trumpet and then went to sax and then finally keyboard. These were lessons that I took in grade school and, and into junior high. And so uh, I asked if they thought an organ would fit in with what they were doing. And they said, let's give it a go. And uh, so we did it. And that's the uh, LA teens. I'm sure everyone remembers. Well, no, I guess not. Anyway, <laughs> uh, they... We, uh, we were very fortunate. We, we played around town uh, wherever you could in those days. And uh, we started writing songs that were, you know, somewhat juvenile, but, uh, but kind of nice in their own way, hooky. And we saved our money and went into a little local studio and put down four songs. And one of the band members' mother knew someone who knew someone that was in the music business. And that someone was Gary Usher. And Gary was good friends with the Beach Boy Wilson family. In fact, he wanted to be a Beach Boy, but didn't make that. However, he did write um, In My Room and 409 with Brian. Uh, and he had just, he, he had been doing Hot Rod records, which were uh, at, at the time. This is, this is uh, 1964. And uh, he got a production deal with Decca Records. And so he was signing some acts and he signed the LA Teens. So we went and recorded at uh, two of the best studios in Hollywood to this day, 
Capital and Western, which is now called East West. And um, we did, in those days, you did four sides. And if you managed to get a hit, you ran in and cut six more quickly and put out an album. Uh, sadly, there was no L18's album. But on that first uh, recording session, he had brought in uh, for an overdub a, a session guitarist named Richie Podler, who was an astounding musician. And as it turns out, also an astounding engineer and producer. And so when we got dropped, I went to Richie's studio and told him the sad story. And he said, oh, you guys were great. I, I can get you another record deal. And he did. And we went into his little studio, American Recording, which was kind of funky, but uh, we cut our first track. And when I came in the control room, as he was playing back on the 604, Altec 604Es and utility cabinets, I looked up at those speakers as it was playing, and it was a real defining moment in my life, a real aha moment, because I'd never heard the emotional impact that that the, that the sound he was getting could make on our band. And again, after recording in really good studios at the time. And it, when the song was, when the track was over, I turned to him and pointed at all the equipment and said, can you teach me how to do this? And he said, no, I'm teaching Cooper. Get out there, let's do it, take two. I said, okay. But that was the moment that uh, I really, wow, I want to know how to do that. Now that I, that is a profound moment for all bands who get into the studio for the first time. And when someone has captured your sound, either as you had it in your head or even better, that moment you described is, is a very common uh, thing. And I'm sure you've seen that when you've been, have you, you know, have you frequently engineered people for the first time and been able to experience that moment for other people? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it truly is amazing when, when you can hear and uh, that what you've thought of in your head and been working on is actualized in a way that is appealing to you. And so um, how did you, you know, make the jump from that moment, from being basically 100% musician who had been struck by lightning at the desk to becoming a full-time engineer? How long was that overlap and how difficult um, was it? Okay, well... Um, what happened was I went out and found a, a local studio where I was living. Um, I, I started college. My, my dad was a Jewish doctor, which means he, there was a lot of pressure to be either a doctor or a lawyer. And I knew I couldn't be a doctor. Uh, so I, I, uh, I started college and then I had quit for two and a half years while I ch we, we chased the L-18s around to no avail. And, uh, but so I'm back in college like a good boy living with my parents. And um, uh, I found this little Mickey Mouse kind of studio uh, where I could get a start. And how Mickey Mouse was it? Well, he only had two professional microphones, two condenser microphones. Um, he just had a, an eight input mixer with no EQ and a, a spring reverb for echo and egg cartons on the wall for sound absorption. All right. And... Uh, and it was two track, only two track. And by then the, the standard was four track, getting ready to become eight track. But um, uh, the good part about that, of course, was uh, everything was live. You mixed everything live. And um, so that's where I, I, I got a start. And uh, it, we, uh, finally he came in with a homemade four track. Someone had made a four track out of a couple of two tracks and put a half inch head stack on it and whatnot. He brings that in and I said to the owner, uh, how are we supposed to do that with this little eight input mixer? 
At which point he brought out another little eight foot mixer and set it on top of it. And I said, no, no, that's not going to work. Uh, we got to get something, uh, you know, a little more professional. And so he found this guy in, down in San Diego. I'm in Los Angeles at the time. And he, a guy named Toby Foster, he said he'd heard this guy knows electronics. And Toby came up and uh, given the budget that, that we had for a console, he said, yes, I can make you a plate. It won't be professional electronics. It'll be PA quality stuff. So it might be a little noisy, but it should sound pretty good. And uh, he built that console for us. And from there, Toby had heard what I was doing. Uh, and he, he was the first person to say, you know, you're, you're really good at this. And I just thought he was, you know, blowing smoke. I didn't believe him for a second, but uh, he definitely seemed serious. And he took a job in a, in another studio, a, a real studio as a maintenance engineer and disc cutting. And so what happened is I asked him if, if he could teach me what all this stuff really does because the Mickey Mouse studio, there wasn't enough to learn from. And he said, absolutely. So we, uh, every day after school, I would drive to his studio and uh, he was great, very patient guy. And I would just start in, okay, now I'm sorry, what's a condenser mic again? And what's a dynamic mic and a ribbon and, and on and on and on. And, uh, and he would just, he was so patient and he would take as much as he could until he finally said, okay, good night. See you tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, that, that's how I got, got going. Well, where the, all of my aptitude was in math and science. In fact, I actually started college in aerospace, but um, where the left brain and the right brain met, uh, all this engineering stuff came very, very quickly to me. And um, the owner came to me one day and said, we're moving to Hollywood. I said, I'm not ready to go to Hollywood with the big people, <laughs> big time. And he said, no, you're ready. And uh, so off we went. He had found a studio to rent to put our equipment in this little console that Toby had built. And we put it in there and uh, started doing sessions. Not very many because, it, again, it wasn't that great a studio, but it was right there with Gold Star, a very famous studio down the street in the same block and Paramount recording right across the street. And uh, by now, Richie Podler and his American recording, he had become quite uh, famous as having the best rock studio in Los Angeles. And he was engineering uh, Steppenwolf and Three Dog Night, their first two records. And he had an engineer that worked there that uh, was leaving the business. And he had come to my, to, to my Hollywood studio and visited. And I would go to his when he was doing sessions at American and, you know, see how the big boys ran. And I, when he said he was leaving, I said, do you think Richie would hire me? And he said, well, he should. So we spent uh, two months uh, between this guy, Tommy, and myself working on Richie till the day finally came when he gave me my shot. And uh, it was a sink or swim kind of situation. And I managed to swim and that was it. So that was just two and a half, two and a half years from the time I didn't know the difference between a limiter and an equalizer. So it was pretty, pretty quick ramp up. Two and a half years, quite impressively condensed, um, at which I presume, by the way, writing the book has probably helped to consolidate all of that memory into like a linear narrative. Yeah, it was great doing it. Uh, I couldn't have done it without the internet. The internet was great because you look up different things and it would spark the memory and you, oh yeah, now I remember that and so on. Yeah, it was wonderful. Although, you know, I did find as, as everyone should know, a lot of mistakes, misinformation on the internet. 
one of the funny ones to me was uh, I did an album with the Jacksons. I actually went on the bus and traveled with them. Bet you want to read that book now. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> while uh, 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 w- when we finished, we did them all up in the Northeast of, of America there. So the recording truck could get to the gigs quickly, you know, night after night kind of thing. And uh, when we finished the recording, um, the manager said, you know, get to the next town that has uh, some studios and start going over the takes. And funny enough, the next one was Nashville. And yet when I was online, I found the, uh, the, all of the list of all the, the uh, venues where they played on that tour and Nashville wasn't on there. And I was at the Nashville show. I sat in the audience with a couple of friends. So yeah, there's mistakes, but. Well, it's good to be, it's good that, you know, it's good to still be, be able to set the record straight and the fact that this stuff isn't getting lost in history. And um, but there's so so many things to jump off from what we've heard so far. So many things that I could pick up on and that are you know f- fascinating points of discussion. But one that just came up through that is you mentioned a recording truck. Now, I'm someone who has only been working with audio since let's say about 2013. So the idea of a recording truck is completely alien to me. But it sounds like is that how you would capture and record live performances on the road? Right. Yeah. Um, the first one I did, I started, um, uh, I did a, I, I started, uh, with Barbara Streisand on her Barbara Jones Streisand album. Uh, I picked up in the middle of that album and, uh, did some recording and half, about half the mixing that hadn't been done. And right after that album, um, she was going to do a live concert, uh, at the forum in Los Angeles. And the producer asked me to do it. And I, I'd never done one, of course. And uh, it was kind of scary because it was a one-shot deal, meaning you go in in the afternoon, you set up in the morning, you go in the afternoon while they're doing their sound check and get your sounds. And then that night is the concert. And you, so you got to capture it right then and there. And, uh, and it, it went fine, went very well. The album came out and did very well. And then uh, about four years, five years later, uh, I did the same thing with Marvin Gaye, a live album in Oakland uh, with Marvin Gaye. And that also was a one shot. And um, yeah, so the, of course the Jacksons, we, we did about, uh, I think six shows, four, five venues to it uh, at, in Manhattan. And yeah, so what you, what you have what, in every one of those cases is a, a control room on wheels is basically what it is with uh, where you most typically share microphones with the house and, um, uh, and and they can come out quite good. You know, I did another one with Natalie Cole after the uh, Unforgettable album uh, that became a, uh, a PBS um, show. And uh, that one came out exceptionally well. They had been on the road and they were well rehearsed and it, you know, it worked great. The, the Both the Streisand and the, uh, Marvin were, you know, neither one of them had been on the road working. So it was kind of, uh, you know, dubious what, how it was going to, how they were going to pull it off. But in both cases, and obviously they're both incredible artists, uh, they both came off just, just great. But neither one of them had been touring up to that point. They had not been touring. No. In fact, the, the, the Marvin one has got, you want an interesting story. I find it interesting is that, uh, I had done some mixing, uh, for Motown. Uh, prior to that. And 
I was never given credit for what I had done. I was, it was mixed, it was engineer so-and-so who was a Motown engineer and then special thanks to Bill Schnee. And so I was a little I, uh, perturbed about that, two or three albums worth of that. So when they asked me if I wanted to do this Marvin Gaye, and I, that had to be based on the Streisand album, I guess, uh, uh, I went in and spoke to uh, Barry Gordy's right-hand girl, Suzanne DePass, and she told me all about it, that Marvin hadn't sung in several years and whatnot, but they had every reason to believe that it was going to be a great show and it was worth investing in, a, in, in this one-shot recording. And I said, okay, well, I just have two requests. And she says, uh, not requests, two, uh, two things that I want to happen. She said, sure, what, is, uh, what are they? Uh, I want credit as recording engineer Bill Schnee, and I want a shot at mixing it. If Marvin doesn't want to use my mix, that's fine, but I at least want a shot at mixing it. And she said, absolutely. Well, one out of two isn't bad. So I did the album. Uh, I did record it. It did come off pretty darn well, and uh, I didn't get a chance to mix it. Until about 15 years later, uh, Motown had been sold, and they had a girl that was running uh, a division they called Special Products Division. And I have no idea. I wish I'd asked her because it's the most bizarre thing. I've, I've never heard of it happening uh, of a, on a successful album. Uh, and she didn't know the history that I had asked to mix it and didn't do it. But she called me up and said, I've got an album with Marvin Gaye. It was live. I'm not even sure she knew I had recorded it. She said, I want it to be remixed and I'd like you to do it. And I went, okay. <laughs> and so overcame the tapes and it was great, you know, because uh, I pulled up the box legend. If you've only been at it that long, you, you didn't do analog, right? So, so on an analog tape box inside, there would be the track sheet, which had, the in, in that case, 24 tracks of audio, what they were, the horns and drums and this and that. And so I was looking and kind of laughing at my, because I don't have very good handwriting. And those days when I had to write everything, I, you know, I would take my time, but I could still tell instantly it was my handwriting because it doesn't really change. And evidently neither does your sense of humor. <laughs> and in this, uh, <clears throat> on this uh, concert, which had an astounding, as good as you could get R&B band, uh, just kick butt, uh, the best you could get. Uh, and a big horn section and a small string section. And of course, in those days, uh, uh, that's mid seventies, we didn't have the, the, what, the clip on kind of microphones that we have today to, to do that, which can save it. That's what I used on uh, uh, when hell freezes over with the Eagles, I was on the string section with, but we didn't have that then. So on, on, the, on the track sheet where it said strings, I had an asterisk and at the bottom, the key for the asterisk said, good luck. <laughs> and because indeed it wasn't a very good string sound with all the horns and, you know, drums and everything bleeding into it. But, but I, I did remix it. Um, of course I happen to prefer my mix. I think it's better. Unfortunately, Marvin was no longer with us, so he never got to hear it. But so on the, um, on the technical things there, so, um, you've got a string section with an enormous amount of bleed and you, I mean, the, even when you've got all the modern digital stuff to work with, there's not much you can do about a problem like that. How do you work it in or do you just keep it backed off all the way? Well, like I said, back then, all you could do, all I knew to do back then was use uh, 
you know, use as many mics sort of as I could and get essentially too close because you don't normally mic a string section. You shouldn't, I don't think, mic a string section real close, but try to get as close as I could with all the string mics uh, and, uh, and then make the best of it. And, you know, they're, they're in the mix there, I'm, you know, but it's not, you can't, you could never use as much as, as you might want because of the bleed. Uh, again, now that we have clip-on mics where every violinist or viola or cello, every string player can have this mic clipped on their instrument, that's much, much, much better. You can actually get, you know, it's still going to have bleed, but because uh, they're by and large, they're little omnis, kind of like the one over here that I'm using here to speak with you. Yeah. But uh, it uh, works much, much better. And so the, what the, the, the impression, the ratio of, you know, string signal to bleed will be, you know, preferable. It'll be more like 90-10 as opposed to, you know, the other way around. 10-90, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, interesting, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to disappoint a lot of our advertising people because they're not all music people, but I, I'm trying to lap up as much knowledge as possible here. And you were saying that you don't like to mic string sections close. Uh, and why is that? Well, because because uh, you know, that's not that's not how they were created to be. Yeah. Uh, basically, you know that um, it's the sound. Uh, you know, ideally, a string a string section. You know, if we start and paired down, uh, if we start with an orchestra, you know, the orchestra is 40, 50, 60, 80, 100, however many pieces that uh, should come at you as one thing. It's an orchestra. It is one thing. And so as a result, when, uh, when I do orchestras, like for film scores, um, uh, you know, I, the 80 to 90% of the capture is with three omnidirectional microphones, about 10 feet approximately over the conductor's head. And if you're in a good room, and that's important, if you're in a good sounding room, that you're going to get a really good representation of the uh, orchestra. Now you have film mics on things like the woodwinds that won't might not carry as well compared to the brass, which will typically be behind them and uh, will carry just fine. That kind of thing. But that's how what you want to what you want to do. So if you look at it as a string section, even for a pop record, uh, I, I always tend to. Uh, when I started, I was miking, I think, a little too close all the time, and I had a room mic. And now, uh, uh, because I wasn't recording in as good a recording studios either, because the recording, again, has to have a good sound to it, has to not be too dead, um, so that the, the, the ambience of the room it gives you something. And it can give, depending on the room, it can give you a lot, and you won't get that if you mic too closely. So today, I will start with uh, two or three mics and maybe not, depending on, on what it is, maybe not like an orchestra where I might get 80 or 90%, but I'll get at least 50% usually from, from those uh, room mics, if you want to call them that, the overall mics. Yeah, so you said room mics in a kind of disparaging tone there, and I'm guessing that's because really they are the principal mics. They're not just a kind of a, a, an ambience if you're you know recording. Uh, right, right. Yeah. So that's um, on the orchestra. I don't know what, what you think about this. I've always felt like um, the arrangement of the orchestra, where the instruments are placed, and of course, how the music is written dynamically, you, you could think of as the original approach to mixing before there was any you know, me method of capturing audio. It was actually pre-mixed in the composition. Correct. Yeah, what I've always said is that um, <laughs> the, uh, the ifs. <laughs> if... If you have a good orchestra, if 
the orchestra is in a good room. If you have well-written and well-orchestrated, especially orchestrated notes on paper, if you have a great guy with a baton that knows how to lead an orchestra, if you're not running from a click, uh, if you have all of those things, those sessions are easier for me than a big, big rhythm section because it's, it's, it ta- it's taken care of. Everything is taken care of. And the, one of the things you point out to, to stand on is, is the, in fact, how the instruments interplay with each other, the orchestration of it all. A good orchestrator knows not to have instruments climbing on each other. They stay out of each other's way so that certain frequencies don't build up. Uh, if only a lot of record producers could learn that because a lot of uh, record producers, especially younger ones, will start, you know, with all the mid-range oriented instruments, like, <clears throat> excuse me, like a piano or, <clears throat> or synth sounds and guitar sounds and everything that, that are in the same range and they just start competing with each other. And you, it makes it much harder to, to hear everything, to, you know, that, to, if they could learn to, that orchestrating uh, rhythm sections on uh, pop records or R&B record is very important also. So it sounds as if, uh, this is really interesting in particular, it sounds as if I've always had a suspicion that in the 60s and 70s, to work in a music production environment, there was an absolute requirement to have good musical knowledge in order to work in that environment. You you know, you couldn't just be someone who understood, let's say, the desk and the microphones. Um, if you were a producer in particular, does, is that accurate? Um. For the most part, there was uh, the the role of the producer. If you drop it back into the starting, like in the '40s, into the '50s, and 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 into the '60s, there were still definitely a lot of guys uh, like that were corporate types, um, and uh, some of they were they worked for the corporation, and they did usually know music for sure of, of some fashion. Uh, but they, they didn't get involved hands-on as much. Um, I do think that, um, that engineering back then, uh, especially, and I've always said, uh, maybe I got, uh, maybe I was born just a little too late because that, that era that Al Schmidt, for instance, got to do uh, so much more of than I, I've been able to do um, uh, of the, uh, the everything live uh, w- was just such a wonderful time. And they were, you know, like, uh, they definitely, like if Sinatra records, all those kind of things were absolutely written um, out by an arranger. And yeah, yeah, you really had to know how to follow a score to know how to mix what you were going to mix. Because, uh, you know, even, even when it got to three and four track, you still were capturing the, the band, the orchestra, uh, live on two tracks. So you, you literally, uh, and that's what I do when I do a film score, you're literally sitting there turning the score and, uh, and looking ahead to see, oh, there's, there's a, you know, a, a flute section coming up here and know that the, you know, to, to raise the, the flute uh, stem, as it were, uh, up a bit so that it gets captured properly. Uh, all of that in today's world, of course, with on multi-multi-track uh, is much less important because you can go back and remix forever. But uh, I grew up in the era where you're, you want to capture everything live. In fact, when I went to work for Richie Potter, as I said, the great engineer that he is, um, uh, he, he told me, you know, he said, I, and this was 8-track when I, when I finally got working with him. And he said, uh, you know, I start 
I start mixing with, with the basic track. You know, I'm already thinking about the mix. I'm trying to put everything together. And that comes from having lived in the three track, the, you know, stereo three track, four track days where you, you didn't have another opportunity to make a decision. You made the decisions right now mm-hmm. and um, period over and out. And of course, I still tend to think that way uh, when I'm producing something. I'm still thinking about if, uh, making a, a lot of decisions. I've, I've backed off a lot because there's so many more options now that, that you can do after the fact. But I, I still think that's a really great way to approach uh, recording. Yeah, absolutely. I was brought into one of my first heroes of uh, sound production, recording, and, and the whole area was Steve Albini. And um, he really preached the gospel of you have to get the sound right before it comes into the microphone and before it comes you know, onto the tape because he's an analog guy, very, very devoted analog guy. And now, you know, I, we work in a digital production environment. Everything is done in the box. Everything is created and mixed in the box. And what we've arrived at, in my opinion, uh, is an era where people believe all problems can be solved in post-production, you know, which relates to the string question. You know, if we hear a, a very close, scratchy string, people, you know, clients and the kind of people who work with us will say, well, can you put some reverb on it? And can you, can you make some magic happen that will make it sound perfectly recorded? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, uh, the, there's no question that, uh, and it started, you know, it's not just, I mean, now we're, we, obviously we're, we are in an insane territory where we can make people that can't sing sound like they can sing and, you know, you can change everything from their intonation to the phrasing, anything and everything you want. But even it, even, uh, it, it started probably really started with 16 track where the, we saw engineers coming in that maybe weren't really gifted mixers, <clears throat> but it didn't matter because they could spend as much time as they wanted, you know, mixing the 16 tracks. <clears throat> Excuse me. What makes one a gifted mix engineer? Uh, my personal opinion is I think uh, all, I really think that uh, the, it's a gift of balance, of, of a, an innate thing uh, that it's just there. If you, you're, I think you're born with it. It's, you know, it's like, the super, uh, like a super talented musician that, that, that has a gift. Uh, you, know, you put he and another, uh, and someone maybe not with that gift, some other gift, and they, you put them both in guitar lessons or piano lessons for two years and, and at the end of two years, one of them is sounds like he knows how to get around the guitar. The other guy is making you open your eyes and go, wow. Um, and uh, one of my really good friends, and uh, Glenn Johns, uh, speaking of, uh, <laughs> is, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, all about, it's all about balance and right now. And uh, uh, so I, I was fortunate to meet him uh, early, early on when he came to America to, to master with my graduate mentor, Doug Sachs, world famous mastering engineer that, <clears throat> that I learned so much from. And uh, Glenn came over all through the 70s uh, with all of his albums uh, for Doug to master. And uh, so Glenn and I became mates early on there. And uh, I learned a, I learned a lot from talking to him. Well, I think anyone could learn a lot from uh, talking to to Glenn Johns. I mean, for the sake of our audience who might not know, um, 
Glenn Johns, I believe, was, was responsible for the thunderous drum sound on Led Zeppelin IV when the levee breaks. Is that right? I uh, don't know. But, mm. I mean, <laughs> but you know, he, he's just, his list of credits is stupid. It's just Rolling unbelievable. Rolling Stones is on Yale. Yeah, stuff. he recorded the Stones before they were the Stones. And then, uh, and then the albums that I was with him, he, did the, he produced the first two Eagle albums and Who's Next and a couple of albums after that with The Who and... Just, just so many Ozark Mountain Daredevils, so many great records. Yeah, I remember I was, to, to, to be fair, when I was first getting into audio, as I said, 2013, it's when I was 20, yeah, 20 years old at university. And um, they had just installed a state-of-the-art, very expensive recording studio. The room was, it sounded horrible. But um, uh, the engineer, because I was a, a bad drummer at the time, uh, he said, we're just going to put, you know, one uh, mic Overhead, uh, overhead on the snare, one on the left and one on the kicks called the Glyn Johns technique. Is that right? That's correct. And was that for which saving was, space? Which was not, um, not totally different than what Richie Podler in the United States was doing. It was very similar to what, Richie, what I learned from Richie when I got started. Um, but Richie was still recording drums in mono uh, back then. It was just basically, you know, the, 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 and he did use a snare mic. We did use a snare mic back then. Glenn didn't. And I remember it was, was kind of cute. After, I think it was after Who's Next that, uh, uh, who was the drummer in The Who? Why have I gone blank? It's Moon, isn't it? Keith Moon. Yeah. Yeah. He, Keith did an album with somebody else and they put a snare mic on and he loved it. And so on the next album with Glenn, they got in a big fight over whether to have a snare mic or not. And Glenn's thing in stereo was it was about the size. And uh, that, that really did help me too uh, when I formulated my, my way of recording drums, which um, where I, I, wanted the, I wanted both. <laughs> and uh, I wanted the size that less mics get, just like with the string section, you back off the string mics, you're going to get a bigger sound than if they're closed. Same thing over the drum set with the two mics the way he did, does it. And, uh, and yet I wanted the in-your-face uh, part of it. So I definitely, I, I definitely kind of started with, uh, um, with a snare mic. And then it was, it was the early Elton John records that were done at Trident that uh, where every, every drum uh, and the hi-hat, everything had a microphone on it. And so I sort of took those two ideas and put them together to come up with what I came up with in the 70s. Right. So you mentioned the early Elton John records there has been recording. Were you thinking Madman Across the Water and that kind of era? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of my favorite albums. I love that. Yeah. But um, I'm really interested in this idea that you said uh, fewer mics makes for a bigger sound. And I think if we didn't have this wealth of knowledge that we're now trying to preserve in the digital age by doing this very thing, um, you might be tempted to think that more, miking everything would produce a bigger sound. But it seems counterintuitive that it doesn't. And why doesn't it? Well, it depends on your definition of big, uh, because what I'm talking about is a, 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 a wide landscape, a big landscape. Every uh, a mic on every drum gives that, you know, it's in your face kind of thing. Uh, you know, here's the thing, you know, as I wrote about in the book, I learned early on that I came to the conclusion that we don't, for the most part, we don't really make records that sound like reality because I'm trying to think about what reality was as I was getting started. 
So for instance, you know, how I had been taught and every session that I ever went to in different studios, for instance, take the piano. What is the most natural sound for a piano? Um, uh, I mean, our concert grand piano, a nine foot piano is, is, is been done that way so that it will project out into an or out into an audience, but we're in a recording studio and, and is it, uh, you know, and is it more natural, you know, just outside the, the, the box or inside the box where if you stick your head in, which is where the microphones most typically are, that's more natural. No, not really. Same thing with drums. What, what's more natural with drums? If you stand back 15 feet, which is about as close as you ever want to get to a drum set. Yeah. Uh, if you put a couple of mics out there like that, it, you know, it's, it fails. Uh, so the idea of what, what Glenn was doing, that, that was much, much, much more of a combination of that. But I, I look at it that we were, we're making, I determined early on that I was, it was a, more of a cartoon than a photograph, meaning that I, was, I could draw with sound, whatever sounds good, feels good, and moves you emotionally. And don't worry about how real it is or isn't. And that's really where, how everything has developed. If, if you listen back, to in the old days, uh, you know, and like, again, the 40s and early 50s with the, uh, the bigger kind of ensembles that were done where they were in good sounding rooms with very, very, very few mics and no very little equipment to modify them. Um, they talk about uh, my friend Elliot Shiner talks about learning uh, at A&R with Phil Ramone. And uh, in early, early on, they, you know, they had... Um, uh, they had something like one Fairchild limiter and and something some oh and an EQP one A equalizer and he said but we you know Phil hardly ever used them he just you know it was you went out and listened to what you're going to do and you put the mics and if it wasn't bright enough you change the mic simple as that or you change the angle of the mic you know that kind of thing of course and being in a studio that had the luxury of a great mic cabinet as well means you can make those kind of decisions yeah. So I really like this analogy that you used of drawing a cartoon instead of taking a photograph. I actually, interestingly enough, one of the first records that I remember coming out was, I was very young at the time, it was the Slim Shady LP by Eminem because the, the singles were doing very well on the radio. It sounded cartoonish to me. They sounded like cartoon characters, uh, which is just a um, an interesting parallel. But... Uh, where do you think that practice started? Because what I'm hearing in my head, if we're talking about non-naturalistic sounding things, I'm thinking of Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles. I'm thinking of that kind of thing where it's a clear soundscape that's been crafted rather than an attempt to record an acoustic environment. Yeah, well, uh, uh, you know, I think they would, you know, in their, in their uh, quest for unusual and different uh, talk, you know, talking to Jeff Emmerich, uh, I, you know, they did a lot to, to go for that, that idea for sure. Because, it, you know, I mean, yeah, this is, this is a piano, but can we make it sound like something else? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so the, the, they did a lot of that to be sure. And that opened uh, up a lot of eyes, opened up a lot of people, you know, professional people's eyes as you heard those great records with uh, some very unusual sounds and un and relatively unusual use of things like compression, which had not been used anywhere near as much as they did. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. A recent guest we had on was Eric Valentine. I don't know if you're aware of him, yeah? Oh, I know Eric, yeah. 
Yeah, he's great. And he was telling us that little history story um, about in that era, it was until the Beatles, perhaps, it was unorthodox for the artist to meet the studio team, to go into the control room. And um, it was perhaps the Beatles who were, you know, one of the first artists to think we want to go and try and manipulate from the other side of the board rather than just from in front of the mics. Is that, is that accurate? That sounds like, sounds right. I've never thought of it particularly that way, but that, that sounds very correct. So you, I believe, had the privilege of working at some point with all four members of the Fab Four. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, um, it was. Um, it was really wonderful. It was the idea. The, I, what what I've determined is that the uh, three, the three guys decided to give Ringo a leg up. They kind of knew that their solo careers were probably going to do pretty well, but Ringo, not being the prolific songwriter that they were, they they all chipped in to to do something for Ringo, and it started. Um, it started with just Ringo and a band. Uh, Richard Perry had met Ringo while he was doing a Harry Nielsen record in England. Harry was good friends with Ring, and he introduced him to Richard Perry. And Richard uh, got into some talks a couple of years later with Ringo and called me up and said, you know, I'm going to do an album with Ringo. I'd like you to engineer it. And I said, great. So we started with just Ringo and a band, uh, including Jim Keltner. He wanted, <laughs> I'll never forget, um, Richard called me and he said, and he wants uh uh, he wants to record with Jim Keltner. And I said, he's not going to play drums? And he said, no, no, with two drummers. I went, oh, I'd never recorded two drummers. So, okay. And uh, we didn't do it on all the songs, but on quite a few. Anyway, we started with that. We cut a song or two. And then George came over from England. And he heard what we had done and was into it. And he, <clears throat> he brought a song to the table uh, that he had produced on Ringo in England. Uh, called Photograph. And Photograph is a song about, uh, you know, the guy's lost his girl and all he has is a photograph. And George had recorded it quite somber and, you know, a little bit on a dour side. And uh, in discussions, uh, we were, you know, having good time and it was up and everything. And Richard said, you know, why don't we recut this with uh, more of a Phil Spector wall of sound kind of thing. And so that's what we did on Photograph, which became the first single and the biggest one. And then uh, on, at the end of the week, um, as I was leaving one night, Richard said, oh, by the way, um, John's coming in on Monday with a song for Ringo. Wow. And that meant that we had three of the Beatles were going to play with the quiet, the fifth Beatle, uh, not the quiet one, not George, uh, the, the fifth Beatle uh, playing bass, Klaus Foreman. And uh, that was, I mean, the whole week was, had been astounding. But that Monday when he came in and sat at the piano and, uh, you know, Ringo had been the life of the party. And when, uh, when uh, George came over, the quiet one, supposedly, he was very verbal. John comes in the room and it was just like all of them, just like, and it was whatever you want, John, you know, and he was going to, we knew when, when he was done, we were going to, we would know it because he would say, that's the one. And it was great. And at the time, unfortunately, uh, Mr. McCartney had had a drug bust in the United States. And the United States, he was banned from coming over for nine months or something. And uh, it really is too bad because I, I really do think that if he could have come over, there, there's a chance there could have been a Beatle reunion. 
uh, I think most of the bad blood had kind of dried up at that point, three years in later. And, um, and uh, so, but the, the session with John was the only time after they broke up that the three of them ever played together again. And you but, bore witness to that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so when you're working with an artist, um, which was, this was a tack I was going to jump onto before, but this is the perfect time. I wonder as an engineer, when you're working with great artists, with Barbara Streisand, with Marvin, and with John Lennon, how do you manage your stress and your anxiety to give them exactly what they want? Because they have this deity status. Yeah. Um, you know, I was asked that recently. Um, you know, do you, do you ever get nervous? And uh, I, I certainly don't anymore. Now, uh, on the uh, that on the early Barbara Streisand, the, the record, let alone the live record that I talked about, yeah, you, you know there were nervous flying. Um, and with the with all of these Beatles, oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, yeah. But it wasn't too long after that. I think you know I I did uh, No Secrets mixed No Secrets with Carly Simon, and um, you know I worked with and this is all in the first you know three years of being a professional. So to speak, engineer, uh, and I think it's it it worked to my advantage because uh, I I got over that kind of thing. It's just you know they started to realize they're just people and uh, and they they put their pants on one leg at a time uh, or their dress on and uh, that kind of thing. So it 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 got it changed me. On the other hand, as a musician, I popped so quickly that I was working with some of the, you know, a lot of the very best keyboard players, uh, you know, right out of the, uh, out of the box in my career and as an engineer. And, and it was like, I, I just gave up. <laughs> I just, I quit, which is unfortunate. Well, as in quit, I still as a fool musician. around and have been, uh, some, some of my songs have popped up on different albums, but uh, that's what I really thought when I got into the engineering. Uh, it really was, it wasn't about to be an engineer as much as it was to be able to do that with the band with my band. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but kind of went a different way. There are very, the there are very few engineers, like, uh, engineers or producers I've spoken to who, who didn't say that, who's, you know, that most, most of them report uh, and most sound designers in, in the film and on all things, they all come through music and it all came from a dream to be the musician, be on the other side of the mic. Uh, I can't imagine how else you'd get into it, but um but yeah, you were talking about working with great keys players and, you know, maybe some names can come out. Did you ever work with Billy Preston? Oh, yeah. Wow. What'd you do with him? Several times. He was on, uh, I'd have to look at the credits. I don't know if he was on the first Ringo album or the second one, but uh, he, that's, that's when I met him for sure was on the Ringo album. And then I, I have a, a very good friend of mine uh, that's a, a drummer, Bill Maxwell, became very good friends with him. He did a lot of, uh, Bill produced a lot of Christian albums and had worked a lot with Billy. And so in, in the later years, uh, Billy would uh, did several sessions in my studio. And it's always just, you know, absolutely incredible to, you know, especially, especially for me when he was on organ, uh, because being an organ player and uh, let alone someone that really plays the pedals on a B3, you know, which I never did. Uh, it just, you know, sensational to watch, you know, I, to this day, you know, I just love very gifted people and, uh, that have developed their gifts, you know, and I, 
I'll just sit there and just watch, you know, go out in the room to hear what they're doing. And I'll just sit there and watch them for a while and take it in because just it's beauty. It's a thing of beauty. So what's it, what's it like when you're the mediator between producer and artist? You know, when you're trying to, in, are you trying to interpret two different um, visions at the same time? Um, well, uh, uh, you know, it's, sometimes it's a challenge to be sure, especially, especially, shall we say, if I, I agree with the artist and the producer is sitting right next to me. So then, uh, you know, I might try to make a suggestion to him that, you know, I, maybe you should consider this because I think it could be good, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and if it's, if I agree with the producer, then it's, it's a lot easier, but I'm not going to be the one to, to change the tide, so to speak. That's his, his role. Well, who uh, are some of the more demanding producers you've worked with? More demanding? Uh, let's say more difficult to persuade. <laughs> Richard Perry. Oh, great, okay. great, wonderful producer, Richard Perry. He was very headstrong. And, uh, and uh, I, you know, I, I can't say enough about on the positive side. You know, he, like all of us, he had some negative side to him for sure. He, he pushed people really, really hard. Uh, you know, he, you could get a track that was great and it was, the band would come in and listen and, uh, and you know, he's, you're talking about an all-star band of studio musicians. And, you know, listen to it and everyone thinks it's great. And he'd go, good, let's just do one more. And maybe, you know, and he's just trying for something because he wanted options. And uh, th there was one time Jeff Vaccaro told me about it. I wasn't recording it at all. But uh, because in the later years when I started producing, I, I didn't record ever for Richard again. I just did a lot of mixing. Um, but uh, Jeff Vaccaro told me that there was a time when that they came in and listened to the track and he said, okay, let's just do one more. And I'm, you know, and he would come up with something, you know, and maybe he would tell, maybe the bass player could do something here and the piano, maybe did a couple, couple of things just to try something else. They went out and they did it. They came in to listen back and they said, that's the take. And Richard said, yeah, it's a great one, but let's just do one more. And they interrupted him and said, Richard, that's the take. What's the next song, period. And they refused <laughs> to go back out. I loved that. That was the was that one of the only times you ever seen that uh, actually you know win him over? Yeah, well, I wasn't there unfortunately to see course, it, but yeah. I was I was glad that they that they stood their ground, doggone it. <laughs> so um, I want to just briefly ask you about um, work you did uh, on um, anything you did with Miles Davis because you know it's obviously very close to my heart. I grew up on jazz, so uh, well, uh, the incredible musician and bass player Marcus Miller and I became friends uh, on, I can't even remember the first album that, that, that he was on. I think it was uh, uh, Bob James and David Sanborn, I think, uh, a really cool album uh, that he was on, played a lot on it. And um, we'd become friends and into the, that's into the eighties now that was in the, that album, uh, both albums were in the eighties, I guess. Anyway, he, uh, uh, he had, done this uh, Tutu album, uh, a good portion of this Tutu album, where it, it was, uh, shall we call it mixed metaphors to coin a musical phrase, because it was all modern, uh, in the box, loopy stuff and whatnot. And here with uh, the, the jazz giant that Miles was and so on. And um, so it was interesting. And all I did on it was mix for, for Miles, I mean, for uh, 
uh, Miles didn't come, the sad part. I didn't get to meet him then. And so, um, uh, and then right after that, I did, and then Amandala was the next one. It's a very similar kind of thing. And I did some of the mixing on that. But I believe in between, Tommy LaPuma, the great jazz producer that I did a lot of records for back then, um, he, uh, Miles was doing a summer tour throughout Europe. And so they had decided to do a live album. And so that's when I met Miles as I went to record it. And, and it was kind of funny. The first one was an outdoor, one of these little outdoor festivals. And uh, uh, Tommy and Miles are talking when I walk up and uh, he introduces me to Miles. And the tour manager comes up and says, Miles, the equipment didn't get here from the States, but I've worked all morning here and I've got almost everything covered. And Miles stops him and says, I ain't going to do no concert with rented stuff. Cancel the effing thing. No way. And he canceled this. He walked on the show. And we went back to the hotel and still going up in the elevator, he was still mumbling about how bad it was that, you know, the disorganization, you know, that how could they not have the equipment here and all that stuff. But um, uh, anyway, it was uh, the uh, great guitarist Robin Ford was on the bill with him through all those. And it was one of those situations. I've had a couple. I don't understand it exactly uh, that the album was never nothing was ever done with it. It was, it was never mixed uh, until, uh, here we go. This is things that bug Bill Schnee. Um, I, I, I'm a huge person for artist rights. And uh, I can't stand when someone dies and the, for the most part, I'll call them vultures, come out of the woodwork to start picking up things that the artist never finished, never approved, and they finish them for him. Why? Just to make money, you know, to, whether it's a record company or whatever. And that, that, uh, that Miles tour finally did get mixed by, I believe the family went in and got, uh, you know, got, got it out of the vault and, and mixed it. And I'm, I don't know that it, I think it did end up on an album. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but uh, yeah, that kind of bothers me. I know exactly what you mean. There were two examples of that, that, um, that didn't sit well, um, didn't sit well with me. The one was, you know, Marvin's estate went after the Robin Thicke song Blurred Lines very, very hard in 2013. And, you know, one always has to wonder, is that what Marvin would have wanted, you know, his, his name to be in the media for? Yeah, um, uh, I, I, I get it. And especially, I mean, it's, it's hard to know because, you know, uh, I have very mixed feelings about that whole thing because... Uh, taking what you're talking about, Marvin's feelings out of it for a second, because he did rip off the groove without question. Yes. You know, I, I'd be absolutely shocked if they did, weren't listening to that in the control room, you know, before they put the thing together. Uh, and, and, but, you know, and that, that basically was kind of a landmark case because theretofore, prior to that, there'd never been, as far as I know, it was the old school version of what, what you could sue for was so many notes within so many bars that had, mm. that were copied. And that wasn't about notes. It was really just, just the groove. So it's kind of weird, but uh, your point's well taken as whether Marvin would want to be known for that. But that, that, that issue you raised there just came up recently. Um, we were watching Danny Elfman's masterclass on masterclass.com for film composition. And, um, he recounted an experience where he was on Pee Wee's Big Adventure 
and there was a sort of a cowboy scene and he used an ocarina that was a bit like Morricone. And the, the head of music said, you can't do that. And Elfman said, why? It's, I've not done that number of notes. And his supervisor said, it's not about number of notes, it's about context. If you've got an ocarina against a you know Western, then it looks like you've copied Morricone. So was it, you know, was that just in the film world that context was what counted, but then, you know, this was the first time it had happened in pop music? Yeah, as far as I know, that was this was the first time in pop music. I don't know. That's very interesting, though, about what that story you just told. Yeah, it's, uh, well, I mean, I'm sort of, I, I suppose I'm accidentally revealing um, uh, premium content from masterclass.com, so hopefully they'll come <laughs> after me. It's only a small, a small soundbite, though. But yeah, that was, uh, that certainly... In the advertising industry, that gave us sort of a cause for concern because often the request we'll get is, uh, here's a, a track that I like, but I can't afford. Can you make something roughly close to it? Sure. So Yeah, that, 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 <laughs> that goes to uh, two friends of mine, two very good friends of mine, Huey Lewis and um, Ghostbusters, uh, Ray Parker Jr. Yeah. Where, uh, and that... I mean, I, I wrote about it in the book. So, and I, what can I say? Uh, they, you know, they they put the the Huey song in the rough cut of the film, and they tried to negotiate a deal to put it in. And it was, the, you know, Huey was hot as a pistol back then, and they 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 wanted too much, and so they couldn't do it. So they went, they gave it. I don't know how it came up that it went to Ray, but they gave they gave the rough cut of the film with the Huey song in it and said, here, write something like this. And, uh, and those two songs are uh, just a little too close. <laughs> oh, what, so there's, there's, which, what, what's the Huey song? Uh, I should Power be of Love. With. Oh, it was meant to be, Ghostbusters was meant to be Power of Love. I never knew I think, that. I think that's right. I'd have to hear it now again, but I think that's what it was, yeah. Well, and it was funny, I ran, in, I ran into Ray in the car wash when, I, when it started, and, and I said, I said, Ray, what are you going to do when Huey sues you? And he said, he already has. And this is one of those situations. It's kind of funny because uh, Ray had a group uh, that, you know, uh, I, I was introduced to Ray early, early on. And he is an astounding musician and guitar player. And, you, you know, you look at records I've produced. If, if it was possible, I always had Ray on a session because he, his, I, he would come up with incredible ideas. I, I love... Uh, my favorite thing is uh, head charts, putting a bunch of guys in the room together and everybody chipping in and coming up with ideas. Um, there's nothing better than that. And uh, I would, so I would always have him on a session. And, um, you, know, the, you know, the good news is they settled out of court and for a lot of money, uh, not as much as they would have, you know, Huey was on the road. The guys were on the road, so they couldn't take time to go to court. They would have gotten a lot more if they'd gone to court, I think. But they uh, they did settle. And, and you know, uh, Ray had uh, Ray had a, a band before he, he was a solo artist uh, called Radio. And uh, take off on his name, R-A-Y-D-I-O. And um, they had a couple of hits, uh, for sure. Uh, but, you know, Ghostbusters made him a household name and you know to this day so yeah i mean i i still you know there's 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 a time and a place for records like that that are you know absolutely uh that are absolutely right you know and it's one of those where everyone loves that record in their hearts even if they won't say it I think so. Um, we have just we're just coming up in an hour here so i'd like to see if we can just get your thoughts on 
one more thing before we before we wrap up. And um, I'm wondering if you keep up with you know uh, contemporary music, music that not exactly is in the charts now, but that's popular at, uh, currently. Not as much as I used to, but yes. And what do you, you know, what do you hear? What do you think about what's going on? You know, the trends for sampling and, you know, uh, just, you know, taking audio files and manipulating them rather than playing music in. Well, uh, you know, um, uh, I, 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 did I go in kicking and screaming? I don't know. Uh, I, I, I can't remember that far back. I, I love that. Look, I knew, I knew early on that I didn't want to be a, uh, the best buggy whip maker. I think about the guy that was making buggy whips at the turn of the last century, 1900s. And he had, you know, two generations, his father and grandfather made the best buggy whips. And if it had the last name Johnson, you knew that it was the best buggy whip you could buy until one day when nobody, everyone wanted a car, no one cared about buggy whips anymore. So there's no question that the art form of music and recorded music uh, and everything was going to change. So I, I, I thought early on, I'm not going to make the best buggy whip and be sitting alone. So uh, I definitely have stayed with it uh, in terms of a lot of things, mixing a lot of things, uh, especially. But I just, for the first time, uh, right before the pandemic, started producing a girl where uh, the mo- first time I've ever done everything in the box, the only microphone that was used was on her voice. And uh, with some friends, you know, guys that are really good with uh, loops and sampling and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, coming up, I sat with the songwriters and came up with uh, kind of the way Boz would write when I worked with Boz Skaggs. You know, we came up with uh, chord changes and and kind of grooves that moved her. And then she went off and wrote melodies and lyrics to to what what we had. And, uh, And I really enjoyed it. It was really a blast. I'm we, we have five things done and uh, I'm anxious now that things are breaking up with the pandemic. I'm very anxious uh, to get back to finishing that. So I, I thought it was great fun. Well, that's really, that's really encouraging and it was certainly not the answer I was expecting. So it t- I, say, I take it you think you'll be making music one way or another for the rest of your life until the last day. Absolutely. You don't, you don't mention the R word to me because it's a curse word, retirement. Uh, I, I said early on, uh, uh, early on my, that I want to drop over on the console. It'll be something like hit the talk back guys. I'm pretty sure the second, the second verse, the second. (laughs) And that was Bill Schnee. And they'll have to come in and deal with, you know, the dead Schnee. But, uh, but yeah, that's, yeah. I want to be making music as long as anyone will let me. And if they stop letting me, I'll still do it. <laughs> what a great note to go out on. Bill Schnee, the book is Chairman at the Board, and I presume it's available online and at good bookstores everywhere? Yeah, I don't know England what, what's like, but here it's, uh, here it's Barnes & Noble Books a million wherever, but Amazon for sure. Great stuff. Uh, Bill, I really hope we can talk again. I mean, hopefully I can come over to the US and we can talk for real because, you know, I've only been to New York and, and DC and, you know, the West Coast is calling at some point, so. Okay, I look forward to meeting you in person. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Have a great day. 